Hi, I'm Carol. <laughs> and I'm going to be reading from Romans 8, 1 through 4. And if you'd like to look for it in the blue Bible under your chair, it's on page 550. 550. Okay, Romans 8, 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned flesh sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit this is god's word you may be seated thank you carol yes ma'am how are we doing this morning great. is owen back owen what great job he's drying off somewhere. So uh, we're in this new series. My name's Josh and I get to be one of your pastors. It's one of the great privileges of my life and I get to teach and preach um, another great privilege of my life. So here's what we're talking about today is the start of Romans 8. And here's my question to start us off is how would you give somebody confidence? One of my side hustles that I make no money for, but it's my favorite thing to do is to coach my boys in new sports, especially the sports that I know kind of the gist of. So that would be baseball. So we're in baseball season right now, and I'm coaching all three boys, and I love coaching youth. And here's one of the things you have to do in youth sports, especially as the kids get older, is you have to learn how to instill confidence in them. How do you give them confidence? Here's a few ways. You can make them aware of their ability. Lillian, you're a great hitter. You can do this. You can downplay the opposition and say, Lillian, they're terrible. Look at those six years old. They, they're picking their nose. They are. You got this. We are. You got to do a variety. You can love them and care for them and be there. I had a kid break down on the mound yesterday. Just like, it's my fault. I'm like, no, it's not. You got this, man. Get back up there. How do you give a kid confidence? Here's the follow-up question. How does a Christian get his or her confidence? How does a Christian's confidence grow? Is it, Casey Reyes, you're amazing. You are the gift that this world has been seeking for thousands of years, and now Nate Reyes knows it. Your girls know it. This, you are the gift. You can upplay the gifting. You can downplay that stuff we don't like to talk about called sin. You're not that bad. I'm talking to you again for the 76th time about the same thing in my life, and you're saying it's not that big a deal. I think Romans 8, if you have never read it, you are missing out on the heart of Christianity. More than that, you're missing out on any chance you're going to have to gain any confidence as a Christian. Because in this room, we have people who have been following Jesus a while. We have people that are coming in here... Early on, the early chapters, maybe the forward of the book God is writing in your faith journey. And some of you walking in here kind of like, I don't know, I'm, I'm open to this, but this isn't my thing. How are you to gain confidence as a Christian? Romans 8 is the answer. How confident are you right now as a Christian? Here's my big idea. I'm stealing it from Paul because it's the, it's the headline for this entire chapter that we'll be in for the next 
two months. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's our confidence. That's our only hope. That's what we stand on. That's what I have to offer every time I get on stage and open up this book is that there is a God. You are a sinner, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We get to walk through this beautiful passage today, and I'm going to use some bigger, nerdier, more theological words because they're important to have in your tool belt. So here's the three things I'm walking through in this text. There is the declaration, that's not big, that big a word, of no condemnation, that's verse one. There is the sanctification, that would be verse two for those with no condemnation, and there is the justification for those who have no condemnation. That's what we're doing. There's no condemnation, and we're going to walk through this text together. So here's what I want to do. I want to close our eyes and confess to God that we are currently not as confident as we should be. And this verse is the only answer. No hype, no puff, no false sense of puffing any of us up. We need this verse right here. That's what we need, all of us. So let's bow and confess to God. God, what we need is you. What we need is your word, your truth, what you say to be true and right and beautiful. To be the main song in our heart, to be the main thoughts bouncing around our head, to be the thing that we stand on for hope and confidence. So in this room right now, here's what we know, and you know more than any of us, Lord. There is those who sit with condemnation, who feel condemned, who are condemned, who don't want to be condemned. So God, all of us, Christian or non-Christian, we need this passage. Speak it boldly by your spirit into our hearts this morning. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what we get to walk through this beautiful passage. And those of you who've been with us, this is a nice little break. Because we were in Isaiah and we were taking chunks, like three pages of Bible at a time, trying to get through every Sunday morning. We're going like little piece by piece. So it's going to be a little more... Uh, logical and connected feeling than the narratives and the poems of Isaiah. But it's going to be the same truth of God's word from the Apostle Paul. So I just want to read it again, then I want to ask these questions for us. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. What is the declaration of no condemnation? Before we get there, where does Romans 8 sit in the whole context of the Bible? Very realistically, it sits after Romans 1. Two, three, four, five, six, seven. So there's something leading to this moment here. So just to give you a simple man's, here's what's happening. Romans 1 through 3 is the sinfulness and brokenness of the world. Period. The wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness, Romans 1 says. We are under God's wrath because this world is broken and we are sinners. And here's Paul's culmination. Flip back to Romans 3 verse 10. Let's just hear Paul's summary statement. And if you were here to get encouraged because you think church might be the thing, this would be the bad news that comes before the good news. Here's what the Bible says about all of us. Romans 3, verse 10 through 18. 
There, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Who is Paul talking about? Humanity. So all of us. What is the summary statement looking out at a world? There is no one righteous, no, not one. No one does good, not one. Romans 1 through 3, sin. I hope it gets better. It does, even in Romans chapter 3. What is Romans 3, the middle of 3 through Romans 6 about? It's about this word called salvation. Go to Romans 3, verse 21 now. And grammatically, one of the most beautiful words in the Bible, but... Meaning what I just said, I've got something to offer in light of all that. Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. Basically, the whole testament's about Jesus. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. All of sin falls short of the glory of God and are justified by what? Grace as a gift through what? The redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. How do I get that, Paul? To be received by faith. Romans 1 through 3, we're sinners. Romans 3 through 6, there's salvation offered in the redemption bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the only way received by any human in this world is through faith in that person, Jesus Christ. And then Romans 7 is, man, the Christian life is still hard. My dad's life verse, he's like, when I die, I just want you to preach this verse. I'm like, it's awkward, but I'll, I'll do my best, dad. Here's my dad's Life verse, Romans 7, verse 22. This is Paul now describing sin has a solution, it's salvation, and now I'm living in light of my salvation. However, it's still messy. Verse 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, that's my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Here's my dad's go-to verse. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Meaning, what hope do I have? My dad gave his life to Jesus in his early 30s because my parents were getting divorced. He had screwed up royally. Somebody shared the gospel. I want that. He gets saved. He starts giving up all these vices. Fast forward years and years later, he's in his 60s, and he would say, wretched man that I am. 30 years, I should know better. What's my only hope? He would say this. Thanks be, um, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So where does Romans 8 sit? It sits in this story being built up. There's sin. There's salvation. Those of you who have experienced salvation, you're still going to say, oh, wretched man, wretched woman that I am. Why am I still doing this stuff? Some of you said that as you walked in here today. My gosh. Really? I bought something on Amazon on the walk-in? <laughs> Brutal. 
Romans 8, 1 is to those people. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What's your confidence, Christian? Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's what I want to do. Just walk through this verse kind of phrase by phrase. Here's the first part of it. There is therefore. What is therefore for? It's tying it to what we just said. What is Romans 8 doing? It's a train attached to other, whatever train things are called. I'm not a train. Train cars. That sounds good enough. Train cars. You got Romans 1 train car, Romans 2, Romans 3, Romans 4, all the way to Romans 8. Therefore is saying in light of everything Paul just said. There. Therefore, in light of all that, I've got some truth to preach to you, the Apostle Paul would say. And the very next word is this. Seems simple. Seems like a word we'd read over a thousand times. But it's hugely important. When does this happen? Now, Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is there are two chapters in human history. Before the cross, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and now. So right now, Christian, what this means for you, right now there is no condemnation. Right now. You're not looking forward to heaven when one day you're going to get there and you're going to pull out your Owen Elder, I got saved in middle school card and say, ah, right now in this moment, right now, now, like I don't want to skip over these simple little words. Now, that's what Christianity teaches. And just so you know, no other religion teaches that. It's all like, do your best now, and then walk gingerly towards eternity and present your best case one day. And Christianity chucks that off the table and says, now, now, now. Why do you keep telling me now? Because some of you don't live that way. Like you've got an element of confidence that you're going to go to heaven. But you live functionally like that now word Paul never wrote in there. At some point in the future, let's hope, Paul says now. What does Paul say now? There is no condemnation. No condemnation. This word condemnation is a legal term. It happens three times in the New Testament. It's all Paul in the book of Romans. It has to do with the sentence, legal sentence, and the punishment that goes with that. There is no sentence. There is no punishment. There is no condemnation. Where do you get your confidence from, Christian? That there is no condemnation. Nation. One guy wrote, they are never going to be condemned, they will not be condemned, and they can never be condemned. That is the truth of Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation. One pastor I was reading, just talking through how he taught this to his church, he said it's like this. Say you committed a heinous crime. Like, I don't know what sort of criminal activity we have going on here. The worst thing I've ever done in a law sense is shoplift when I was a young guy. Some of you are like, get off the stage, clown. <laughs> some of you have done some harsher stuff. 
And some of you right now are like, people are laughing. You're not laughing. You're like, I've done some stuff. Here's what this is saying. It's like you go to this courtroom and the judge says, I have two options for you. I can declare you not condemned now and set you free now. Or I can set you free, but on parole, and set a future date where you and I are going to meet again, and we're going to talk about that crime and how you've lived after that crime. No right-minded person would want that one. Yet every Christian I know struggles to live like they're that type of Christian. Like God has you on a rope, like you're on parole, and we all have good reason for it. You come with sort of, like I grew up in sort of a catholic background, so I had like this big God, moral God, just God, and church just reminded me how big and scary it was because it was this huge building, nothing like this beautiful piece of architecture here. <laughs> it's like scary cathedral, and you walk in, you're like, all right, I get it. God is big and scary, so I walk through life dealing with that residue. We all have residue. Here's what Paul's saying. There is no condemnation. Very simply, very directly, very passionately, there is no condemnation. For who, though? Here's the end of that statement. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Period. I love how Christianity is described here. It's those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's sort of the evolution in the Bible of how Christianity is talked about. You get the Gospels, Jesus around, you have disciples. Okay? And you never really know like when the disciple turns on the light bulb and figures out the whole Jesus thing. And I think that's on purpose because that's how all of us are. It's like, Peter, when did you get your act together? TBD. <laughs> and then the book of Acts, it's these disciples that now have spread. And now it's this thing called the way. We're following the way. It's like this man, this Messiah is bigger than just a local teacher. He has created a new way, the way. And there's followers of this way. And then you fast forward in sort of a derogatory sense, the word Christian happens for the first time in the book of Acts, and the people looking from the outside in and say, those Christians. But then you fast forward, you get into the epistles, the apostle Paul, his main way of describing being a Christian is saying, you are in Christ or you are in him. 143 times Paul uses a statement like that. Why? It's to describe the relational intimacy that you cannot separate Christ from me, me from Christ, any of you in this room who are in Christ, you are as intimate as possible. You are inside of Christ. For your identity, for your protection, for your care, you are in Christ. Who is this for? Therefore, there is no condemnation. It's for those who are in Christ Jesus. Period. Let me just read it one more time. For those of you that are a little slower. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you don't have that memorized, you need to. Some of you older folks maybe got saved with this Romans road deal where you walk through bits of Romans. This is one of them. You might have it saved. But this younger crowd maybe has never even opened up the book of Romans. You need to memorize Romans 8, chapter 1. This is the declaration of Christianity. I'm not condemned. You aren't condemned if you are in Christ Jesus. Now, here's what's interesting about a declaration. Anybody can declare anything about anything. 
The Office, my, one of my favorite episodes. Michael Scott's needing to get, go through bankruptcy. And they said, you need to declare bankruptcy, Michael. So he comes out of his office. I declare <laughs> bankruptcy. And they're like, that's not how it works. Anybody can declare anything. What is the strength of this declaration? What is it rooted to? What is it standing on? What confidence do we have to take this and believe it for ourselves? Just to give you a little Bible study tip, there's a few words in here that shows you what this truth is tied to. I want you to look real quickly. We're not going to read but one word. The start of verse 2 there is the word for. Go to verse 3 now. The start of that sentence is for. So here's what happened in this passage. Paul made a declaration. And then he says, for this. And then again, for this. What does for mean when you're writing a sentence, when you're speaking? It can mean one of two things. It can mean evidence, or it can mean the basis or origin of what you just said. For example... I am overweight, for my scale told me so. I am overweight, for my scale told me. Number's getting high. That's evidence that I'm overweight. Or, I am overweight, for I turned to food in my depression. The same word used differently. The first one is evidence. I'm overweight. The scale gives me evidence. I'm overweight for I turn to food. That's the basis and that's the origin of the reason why. So, like I said, this is different than Isaiah. This is not a poem. This is a logical, airtight proof of what Paul is wanting us to understand. And he makes a declaration and then he says, for this reason, for this reason... Verse 2, what kind of four is it? And verse 3, what kind of four is it? Here's my hypothesis. Verse 2 is the evidence. Verse 3 is the origin or the basis. So let's go to verse 2. And here's my question for verse 2. What is sanctification for those who are in Christ Jesus? What is sanctification for those who are in Christ Jesus? We just heard this great, like we could have just preached... Romans 8.1, and then get Chandler back up here and sing some more, and some of you probably want to get baptized because like Romans 8.1 hits you, but we're walking through all this. Romans 8.2 now, what does Romans 8.2 says this? Let's read it together. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What is sanctification? Sanctified, the key word, the base word there is holy. So sanctification is becoming more and more holy. Sanctification is the process of Josh looking more like Jesus than he looks like that old Josh. And if you're in Christ, you're in that process now. You are looking less like that person that you left behind when you were baptized and more like the person of Jesus. With your same personality and your flinches and all the ways God has beautifully wired you and created you, he doesn't just trump our personality. He comes and he transforms us. He sanctifies us. How is sanctification described in this verse with these two contrasting things? The law of the spirit of life, capital S, which means you should pay attention, and the law of sin and death. You see that verse too? 
Like I said, we're going to be more dialed in here. Law here. So here's what's also confusing with Paul. Peter even says, man, Paul's hard to read. I'm like, I don't know if apostles are allowed to chuck people under the bus in the Bible, but Peter did. He's like, Paul is difficult. He's got a lot of words. He, he uses the word law so many times, and it doesn't always mean exactly the same thing. In this instance, law simply means the principle or the power. So another way to say it is the principle of the spirit of life is setting you free from the principle of sin and death. That's what sanctification is. The Holy Spirit has come into the life of believers, of Christians, of those who are in life Christ Jesus. And what is it doing? Is it is taking away this old power, which used to be the only power operating inside any of us. No matter what age you were, you don't mature out of this law of sin and death. You get changed by the conversion of the Holy Spirit and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And now the law of the spirit of life is more and more decreasing the power of the law of sin and death. In just context in the book of Romans, before this moment, Paul has mentioned the Holy Spirit one time. That's not to say like, Paul, you should have talked about it. The point is, Paul is about to go on a Holy Spirit rant. Because in the Romans chapter 8, he talks about the Spirit 20 times. So there was sin. There was salvation. I know the Christian life is hard. Romans 7, Romans 8. Boom. What is the secret sauce in Christianity? The Holy Spirit. And what is the Holy Spirit doing? It is eliminating the power of the law of sin and death. The power of sin is being eliminated. It has not been eliminated. But that which you used to not be able to do, you are now able to do. Why? Because the law of the spirit of life is working in you. Like here's an example in parenting where this comes into play. So not to put you on blast, but here's what less than good parents do. Less what Romans is after here. Your kid has a moment where they need to be disciplined or trained or whatever word you use to frame it in your house based off whatever's going on. <laughs> Something needs to happen. Christian parenting should look like this. You present your kid with the issue. And your kid, if they're honest, has to at some point say, I, I can't fix this. You're always beating up your brother. I know. I don't know any other way. <laughs> you were always lying to me. I know. I don't know how not to lie. And here's what less than great Christian parents do. Well, fix it. <laughs> and what does your kid have to do? He has to go and lie or she has to go and lie or fake it because she really, he really can't fix it. Why? Because what's operating him is the law of sin and death. What you have to tell your kid in that moment, and it's fresh, and I've learned the hard way, like, just fix it, dude. He's like, I, I seriously can't do what you're calling me to do, Dad. And you stop, and you say, I get it. I can't do most of what I'm called to do. However, Romans 8.2 says this, the law of the spirit of life is setting us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Let's pray and ask the spirit of life to do the work in you that you can't do on your own and I can't do and I can't parent into you. I can't be logical enough, winsome enough, loving enough, uh, 
exacting enough to get to the heart issue and fix you. What you need is the law of the spirit of life. And I can't give it to you. God has to. Let's stop and pray. Now, why don't we do it that way? Because that's way more frustrating. And it's way easier to just be like, go fix it and get out of here. But to say, no, what God is inviting us into this moment where the inadequacy of your flesh is being exposed. And it's an opportunity to press into the law of the spirit of life and say, God, help my son, help my daughter, do which he, which she can't. I read this great quote just describing how law and sin and the flesh all work together. It says this, Moses' law, so that'd be the commandments of the Bible, has the right, but not the might. Think of might as power. So Moses' law is good and perfect. What God wrote down in his book is good. It just has no power to change us. Sin's law has might, but not right. So then sin comes in and it has power over us, but it is not the right thing, the good thing, the loving thing to do. But the law of the spirit of life has both right and might. What is sanctification? It's living more and more in light of that third line there. What I need, what you need, what your marriage needs, what your parenting needs, what your grandparenting needs, what you need to deal with your ex is not another book. It's the law of the spirit of life, freeing you from that which you used to only be able to do. That is sanctification. Now here's, just pause right here. Declaration, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For this law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. If Paul would have just stopped there, here's why this is very despairing. Because then we'd be basing the declaration, no condemnation, on my ability to live in the power of the Holy Spirit as opposed to the power of the law of sin and death that works in me. So just like full honesty, counseling session, like, if that was the basis of your confidence as a Christian. Hey, man, how are you doing with that pornography? Let's get some hands in the air. Let's just get real, you know. Let's... How are you doing with those wandering thoughts? How are you doing with that constant overspending? How you... You're like, man, this is not the time to invite a guest. Yes, it is. Because <laughs> we're all the same. How are you doing with the ability to overcome that which is in you that you don't like and God does not like? We'd all be like, that's why my dad goes to Romans 7. Wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? But Paul does not end there. It doesn't go declaration for the spirit is working in you. Period. Confidence. It then goes for. That is not the basis of our confidence. Our sanctification. What is the basis of our confidence? It's the word justification. What is justification for those who are in Christ Jesus? Here's the last couple verses. Let's read them together and then I'm going to walk through them. Verse 3 and verse 4. Christian, here is another reminder of where your confidence rests. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Declaration, no condemnation. Sanctification, the spirit is at work in you, freeing you from that which you used to not be able to be freed justification. What is the base word for justification? It's the word righteous. Justification is this. How are you made right before a holy, perfect, all-powerful 
God. What is the basis for our justification? Romans chapter 8, verse 3 and 4 is the most succinct, easily understandable verse on what God does to justify us. Let's walk through it together. Verse 3, for God has done. Here's Christianity in a nutshell. God did it. I benefit. Period. Here's religion. You do it. Hope for some benefits. Who did the work that was needed to be done for us? For God has done. God could not be more abundantly clear throughout Scripture on who gets credit for salvation and all the good things in this world. It's God. For God has done. What did he do? Let's keep reading. What the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Again, the law is good. God wrote the Old Testament commandments for a reason. What the law could not do. Why? Because it's paired with weakened flesh that all of us understand. It's like, hey, don't touch that. What's every kid do? Why? Because the law weakened by the flesh. We're all the same. And adults get cuter and more money and more ways to manipulate around this system. But here's the reality. Law does not fix us. Law paired with our flesh just shows us, man, we are in trouble. What could the law not do? Two big things. It could not set us free from the power of sin. And it could not save us from the penalty of sin. There's a great book, Pilgrim's Progress. It's a famous, you know, Puritan book. We have a kid version we read to our kids, and I love it. It brings me in tears every time. But there's all these characters. Faithful is the Christian on this journey through life. And he experiences, you know, envy and the, the city of gluttony. And, you know, it's like, what is life like? It's walking through very hard life, trying to stay faithful to Jesus Christ as the world is coming down on you. And one of the most interesting characters in this book is the person representing Moses, representing the law. And this is Faithful's encounter with the law. So soon as the man overtook me, it was but a word and a blow, for he knocked me down and laid me for dead. Faithful walks, he meets Moses, the law. What happens? UFC to the jaw. But when I was little, I came to myself again. I asked him why he did that to me. He said, because of my secret inclining to Adam the first. Meaning you're just like your daddy's, 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 daddy's dad, Adam. And with that, he struck me another deadly blow. And he beat me down backwards, so I lay at his foot as dead as before. And I came to myself. I cried for him mercy. But he said, I do not know how to show mercy. And with that one final blow... The law weakened by the flesh. The law is a mirror that's just there to expose that which we don't want to look at. And it beats us down. That's why God had to do something to intervene in this. God did this. What did he do? Next little section. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. What did God do? God the Father, he sent his one and only son, Jesus, that whoever might believe in him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. He sent his son in the likeness of flesh. He doesn't say he sent his son in the exact likeness of flesh, in the likeness. We are made in the image of God, so we represent God here on this earth, but we are not exactly like God. In the same way, God sent Jesus to be like us, but not exactly like us. But he's got a genetic code. He's got blood flowing through his veins. He's got hair on his toes. He's like us in a lot of ways. But Hebrews says this. 
We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we, yet without sin. Jesus is like us in every possible way, except one key way. He never sinned. Everything else, check, 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 except for sin. God sent Jesus. And what did he do to Jesus? Let's keep reading. For sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. What is he saying there? The flesh he just talked about, Jesus in the likeness of us in this flesh, he condemned. The sentence, the penalty for our sin was placed on Jesus Christ in the flesh. He took it. And some of you have heard this a million times, but you just need to hear it again. Because as you look and try to dissect why you're not as confident or sure as you think you should be, I bet a lot of us can tie back to this. We have forgotten the basics. Jesus was condemned in the flesh in our place. Isaiah says, God was pleased to do this. God did this for us. Let's keep reading. Why did he do this? Verse 4 in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That word law there is singular. Not the righteous requirement of the laws, the righteous requirement of the law. It's like, what do all the lies kind of, the laws tie themselves to? There's over 600 commandments in the Old Testament. Rules that God's wrapping all this up together. Jesus Help me understand this. He says to the man who asked him, what's the greatest commandment in all the law? You guys know this. Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like this or tied to this. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, all the prophets hang on these two commandments right now. Jesus came to be that which we cannot do on our own, namely loving to every person, every situation, no matter how tired you are or justified you are, I am in my inability to love. Jesus always stepped into the moment and he loved perfectly. We can debate about all these laws and the goats and yeah, what about the goats? Yeah, we can talk goats. However, what God is wanting from us is this, that we would be loving, that we would love him in every moment of our life and we would love others more than we love ourselves. And here's what sin says. We did not do that. So he sent Jesus to be that for us. That which we were not, Jesus came to be. And what does it mean that Jesus is? He is our perfect substitute. It's called imputed righteousness. Just a quick example and we'll wrap up. I saw this years ago and it's always stuck with me. But So this is your life. Ecclesiastes would say, every thought you've had, it's written down. You're like, e. <laughs> every action, written down. Every word. Another section that says, even every careless word. Well, I didn't mean to say that. Page 76. I don't know what you meant to say, but. <laughs> sin. Lots of sin. Lots of regret. Lots of shame. For God did what we could not do because the law weakens our flesh. He sent his son. And here's Jesus' life. You open it up. Page 67, I wonder what Jesus is doing. 
Oh, he's loving that guy with the droopy eye. Page 96. Oh, Jesus is perfectly loving the woman at the well who's in the middle of an adulterous relationship. And in the same moment, he turns and looks at the men around her and he loves them perfectly by being full of grace and full of truth. And then he takes six steps and he's got his annoying disciples whining again. And he perfectly loves them. Wherever you look, Jesus is perfectly loving. Here's what Romans 8, 3 and 4 say. We take our little cover off our book and we got to put it on Jesus. And when God goes to Owen Elder, page 86, wow, he really fulfilled the law. Wow. I can't get over this kid. Wow. And then Jesus takes Owen's life and my life and your life and God treats him like it's us. And he punishes him on a cross for our sin. Therefore, Paul can say there is no condemnation. Why? Because it was placed on the cross. And those of us who by faith now trust in Jesus experience that. I want to close with just two quick things. Very simply, for those of you in this room who don't claim to be a Christian, still figuring this out, I just want to read Romans 8, 1 again and just remind you what is said and inferred in this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you flip that, if you are not in Christ Jesus, there is condemnation. Which means there is a God who is just, perfect, and he is going to punish sin. And you sit currently condemned. It does not have to say that way. But Romans 8.1 is written for a select group in this room, namely those that are in Christ Jesus, or what verse 4 would say, those who walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. For the Christians in this room, I just want to encourage you with this. There is no condemnation for those of you in Christ Jesus. And here's what might be happening in your life, because it happens in mine. You get the declaration and you want to believe it. However, you base it on the ability to be sanctified. And all your confidence is wrapped up in how you're currently doing as a Christian. I get it. I'm there. How you're doing as a spouse. How you're, whatever area of life. How you're doing as a teenage boy in a very hard world to stay pure. How are you doing? And you base it on your ability to be sanctified in that right there. And there's thought to be put in that in questions, but that is not the basis. That is not where our confidence lies. You read again, verse 3 and 4. Here's our confidence. We have been justified. For God did what we could not do. He sent his son to be condemned in the flesh so that you and I could declare mightily there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. There is no condemnation there will not be condemnation. There will never be condemnation. God, let us never get too cute for that truth that set us free. Let us not get bored with the most beautiful, glorious truth any of us have ever received that our relationship with a holy, righteous, perfect God now is tied together with these words, no condemnation. We are free. 
And God, may our faith always rest on the confidence of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Even as we stumble and falter and stammer and try to see more of the law of the spirit of life in our life than we see the law of sin and death. But God, we want to stand on Romans 8, 3 and 4. God did what we could not. So we praise you once again this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.